Coming up next, the booking reads The Boys of Blur. to the bookening. My name's Nathan. <laughs> I'm your humble and obedient host. <laughs> wow, wow, that's your impression, huh? <laughs> that's how you see me. <laughs> well, that's a nice hurtful way to begin things. Oh, hey. poor, oh, poor oh. Nathan. <laughs> I don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm just trying to be somebody. <laughs> I just want people to like me. Hey, hello, everybody. <laughs> It's me, Nathan Hours, and your humble and obedient host, joining you for another episode of The Bookening. <laughs> you may be asking why I'm doing this voice. It's because this is an imp- my impression of Jake and Metzl's impression of me. You probably can't tell the difference. This is <laughs> pretty much how I usually sound. We. <laughs> That's not true. I sound like this. And I'm welcoming you to another episode of The Bookening. I, of course, am Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. How did I get to be so humble and obedient? You may be wondering. I'll tell you the story. It had to do with my father, who was murdered, Brandon, by my uncle. Oh, no. Thrown into a a rampaging horde of wildebeests. Oh, no. And my uncle told me I did it. Did you believe him? I believed him. I ran out into the jungle. I hung out with a... Warthog? A warthog and a meerkat. Until a monkey came and told me I needed to face the past by forgetting about the past. That's a moving story. That's not the only story that there is to tell today. There's also the chilling tale of Brandon Chasteen. Can you come back to me? (laughs) We'll go to... Jake Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. Brandon is the caller who's a baller of reading. Jake Menzel is the pastor who's a master of reading, and he has a wonderful anecdote that he wanted to share with us. Well, it all began when my uh, father and mother died, and my wicked stepmother moved in with her two daughters and locked me in a tower and made me serve them like a slave. While being locked in a tower? Yeah. I thought maybe your hair was going to grow really long. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, my hair never really got very, very, very long. But yeah, so they kept me locked in the tower, except for when they wanted me to come out and like be their slave and stuff. One day, a weird witch showed up, turned a pumpkin into a carriage, and I went to a ball and met and married a beautiful princess and lived happily ever after. So. Wow, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's nice of the weird witch. Brandon, you've had plenty of time to think of your story now. Oh, so. yeah. See if I can trigger the memory here. Okay. When I was a baby, my parents were both killed by an evil wizard. Oh, no. <laughs> who came. He was actually trying to kill me. Instead, just left this scar here. Oh, as yeah. You see. Yeah, have you never noticed it? Yeah. My hair is always covering it up. Yep. It's in the shape of kind of a weird splotch. Yeah. Needless to say, I had like this decades-long feud with him, finally killed him. Oh, you killed him? Yeah. Things been going well for you since then? Yes. Glad to hear it. Which brings us to our book today, Andy Wilson's Boys of Blur. 
And what is this? It's Brandon Chastain. He's brandishing his pistols. Contextual Texan style. Yes, I am. <laughs> Brandon, what is the contextual Texan? I mean, he's you, but how does it, what, what, what happens in this segment? I provide context. You provide context. So you're going to provide a little context for Andy Wilson's Boys of Blur, but first you're going to fire off those pistols and give us a hail and hearty yeehaw. Ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> All right, man. What uh, kind of context you got for this and Mr. Andy Wilson's boys a blur here? Well, let's start out by briefly discussing Andy Wilson. Okay. He was born in 1978. 1978. Just a scant few years before we were born. Yeah, that's right. He's around our age. Mm-hmm. He's had quite the successful career of young adult novels. He's known as a young adult novelist. He is the son of Douglas Wilson, or Doug Wilson, who is out in Moscow, Idaho, runs a fairly... Successful, I don't know if I should say fairly successful, very successful ministry out there. As a pastor? As a pastor. I keep looking at Jake because he he can speak to this more than I can. Maybe it's worth saying that our church, has, our pastor, head pastor in particular, does have a relationship with Doug Wilson. I don't know. Is it worth saying that? Sure, sure. We have a relationship with those guys. Doug has actually come out. He's Yeah, if you've ever seen anything about Doug at Indiana University, it's because, fun story, we invited Nancy out to speak at our women's retreat. And I was the college pastor at the time and was told to come up with something to do for Doug. Because they, 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 they travel together, right? They, they, Nancy's, yeah, Nancy it's, ain't going to come. Rule. Nancy doesn't travel without Doug. So since we're going to have Nancy at our women's retreat, we had to have Doug come and do something, which was great because Pastor Bailey, our senior pastor, is friends with Doug. And so I was tasked with come up with something to do on campus with Doug Wilson. And so I came up with this idea called Sexual by Design pitched it to Doug, and he liked it, and we designed it and promoted it on campus and created a firestorm. and People beating on walls. And, and then... No exaggeration here, folks. Yeah, and then we yeah when it came time for the event, there were protesters lined up outside. Uh, we had to have security. They called in an additional 20 to 30 campus police officers. The dean of students was there. There was a timed protest in the middle an interruption. There were people beating on the doors outside, yelling, we're still here, we're we're still queer, somebody got arrested. It was ridiculous. So if you've seen that footage anywhere, uh, I think they ended up using that in a documentary at some point. Yeah, it's pretty intense. You can still find it. You can find that footage somewhere online of, um, Doug was just talking about, what, sexual... Biblical sexuality? I mean, yeah, what, what was it that was annoying <laughs> all the students on IU so much? I think the right person saw some of our ads and decided to rally the troops, but it was just a very simple, you know, the Mars and Venus male and female sign in chalk on sidewalk, sidewalk chalk on the sidewalk, and find out why, and sexual by design, which was the name of it. It was right around the same time, too, as with the Wall Street stuff, the, what was that called? Oh, uh, Occupy. The Occupy movement was going on. They had had a, a, some assistant professor or whatever had staged a sit-in on the board of trustees meeting like the week before. And so it was just a really, we're college students and we want to be like the kids at Berkeley 50 years ago right. kind of kind of moments. They were coming and protesting in hordes and yeah. it was pre-Obergerfell. Right? It was, yeah. Obergerfell. 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 Yeah, it was a different world. Yeah, yeah, that, and that was the first contact I ever had with Nate. Actually, was because I, in order to convince them to send the videographers out, I had to make a pitch to Nate and uh, Aaron Wrench on the phone for the value of it. At first, it was met with a little bit of skepticism, but I think I don't know how big a deal it was that once Nate got on the phone, but he certainly had a part in in making making it happen. So you've talked to the real Andy Wilson, author of Boys of Blur, sure have in real life IRL. Wow. 
IRL. What's he like? He sounds like the same Nate Wilson that's in the trailers. and Just kind of a cool guy, like... Yeah, he's guy. Seemed cool. He wasn't like, if you'd read my Boys of Blur, then you'd <laughs> no. know that... <laughs> no, no, no. He was... We had a point. We had a purpose to talk, and so we... That's what we talked about was the thing, and and I, I think my my pitch was probably too elaborate and over the top, a little grandiose, but I felt like that was the kind of thing that maybe those guys would go for, so I don't know. Anyhow, we ended up having an actual thing that was a big deal, and they, they've sure been able to make a lot of hay out of that footage since then, so. I've always enjoyed our church's relationship with Doug's church uh, in Moscow, because people are always talking about, like, relations are breaking down in Moscow, and it sounds like a Cold War movie, which... <laughs> I really enjoy. <laughs> like, we need to get a communication to Moscow. So that's my baggage. Or I, we're talking about context, though. We're talking um, about context right now. Yes. So it makes this a little strange because we've, when I've provided context on authors in the past, we have not had a personal relationship with the author. And we're not pretending to be like best friends with Nate Wilson. No, or anything but like it's that, like if we were to talk about Cormac McCarthy, none of us have ever, even if we had met Cormac McCarthy, there's not an actual shared history. But right. there's some shared history with Doug and what he's doing because Doug's a fighter, and so one. One of the places he has fought and led a lot is in education, and Indy Wilson is definitely the product of that. He went to his in New St. Andrews, I believe he graduated from New St. Andrews, which is the college that Doug and a group of other men started out in Moscow. I don't know if he went to the Lagos school or not, or if that's before Indy, do you know? I don't know. Indy could tell us all these things. Tweet at us, Indy. Did you go to the Lagos school? <laughs> <laughs> he graduated from New St. Andrews, went out to... I believe, Liberty University, and studied theology there for a a year or two, and then ended up going to, uh, what is the school? He got his Master's of Fine Arts, I believe, at St. John's. I think it was St. John's. After he got that, he had decided in the sixth grade, I believe, to be a writer. At least that's what the internets tell me. But really didn't start writing until college. His first book, he said, was just a horrible failure, and he's never published it. But he did write shortly after that, start working on his Hundred Cupboard series, which just, if you're listening, Indy, my daughter, Alyssa, who's 13, you are her favorite writer. She just loves all your books. And so you're, that's, she's actually the way that I first even knew who you were. I didn't know you were a fiction writer until then. And, but she just, she's read all your books, The Ashtown Burials, Hundred Cupboards, Leap Kike Ridge. She's got your new book on pre-order. Mm-hmm. So probably wouldn't mind a signed copy. Oh yeah. She'd love a signed copy. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Indy Wilson, most of his books, I think all of his books, except for maybe Notes from a Tilt-A-Whirl, are young adult fiction. There's and one Death more. By um, living. Death by Living. And Death by Living. Yeah, uh, there may be some other like pre. I think th- I feel like there were some pre sort of launch of his career things that he did with Canon Press, like satire or something like that. Yeah, well, I could be wrong about that. I yeah, well, right. it wasn't when it surprised me after getting his degree, he went back to New St. Andrews where he taught for a while, and now I think is actually a fellow of literature there. When in their, I guess their literature department. Um, <laughs> Wait, where is he a fellow of literature in? Which uh, department? Probably probably science. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be my guess. <laughs> his books have had a lot of success, especially in the young adult fiction world. And so he's hitting his market there. Like I said, Alyssa's 13. A lot of the young kids from our church read his novels. Very popular. So I believe you guys said that this was actually in the running for a Newberry? What I saw, so so there, there are these blogs out there that track who's in the running for Newberry. And this book was on... 
I think every list that I looked at in the top five or 10 for most of the year. And then I saw at least one person who claimed to be, and I think I verified this one. I'm getting a little confused because I looked at a lot of things really quickly. Said there were panelists who thought that early on in the year, they this was going to get their vote and it ended up being crowded out by just it was a strong year. Or whatever. It was just a really strong year or something like that. All right. Well, that was a good discussion about Andy Wilson. And all the context therein. Hey, it's the airplane going over, indicating baggage check. Part of the show where we talk about whatever baggage we may have brought to this book. Jake, what baggage did you bring to the boys of Blur? The boys of Blur. Well, I, di- I didn't know what to expect with this book. When you have somebody who is trying to speak into the into the, into the world that Nate Wilson's trying to speak into. I get a fear that, okay, what kind of C.S. Lewis poser am I going to be dealing with when I actually crack in his books, right? He's, he writes the apologetic books over here that are very C.S. Lewis-y, and then he writes books about moving through cupboards into fantasy worlds. Sure. Right? Oh, yeah. Isn't that what Hundred Cupboards is? It's like, okay, well, we know who he's modeling himself after. There's a little bit of that, like, what am I going to run into here, and am I going to be sort of gagged by... C.S. Lewis poserishness. On the other hand, I had an idea that this book was definitely going to be very different than that. And part of that was because of uh, the comparison, at least the marketer at Random House or whatever, wants you to think that this compares to Maniac McGee, which I loved as a kid. And so, and it definitely seemed to be a very different kind of book from the outside looking in. So I was eh, maybe a little excited about it. Thought maybe we'd have something neat. I mean, we could just say, we've talked a lot about C.S. Lewis poser-ishness on this podcast, so you can go back and listen to 36 episodes worth of us bashing people that try and uh, emulate Chesterton or Lewis too much. Not necessarily saying that Nate's did anything bad like that or has done anything bad like that. We just generally, when we get the smell of it, we're afraid. We get angry. We get angry. When we get the smell of it. When we get the smell of it. Yes, it's like a grin, really. (laughs) That's the best metaphor. But, uh, good news is there's no there's no c.s lewishness about this it's no not. And, and really i've seen the movie notes from matilda world and i don't think that c.s lewis would have made a movie like that no i don't think so either i mean he's he's, he's, he's a pretty he's, good movie he's got his own voice and it doesn't read like some guy and i you can see where he likes c.s lewis and likes gk chesterton and all those guys but it doesn't feel gross like oh boy i mean he's definitely has figured out i think how to do the kind of shtick that lewis and chesterton did and do it for people now which will, the problem with a lot of that poser lewis chesterton stuff is that they still write like lewis and chesterton did and this is in the, the year 2017 you just shouldn't write like those guys wrote yeah there is something very i want to say muscular and there's some some strength and vitality that that nate brings to everything that he writes that sets itself apart he's his own man and that's a good thing but for you can forgive us for perhaps smelling that grand like f- thing and feeling some ir- ir- irrational fear and hatred Brennan, your baggage sir? my baggage my baggage was i think i already mentioned this fact that my daughter really loves these novels has read them all Actually, the only one she's never read is Boys of Blur. Oh, no. So she's now going to read this since I'm done with it. I knew that he was an author she really enjoyed. I knew that he was Doug Wilson's son, so I had some sense of probably the kind of author he was. Yeah, that's pretty much the only baggage I brought to this. How old is Alyssa? Just turned 13. How do you think she'd feel about, or how do you think you'd feel about her being featured on a little hot take episode or something? I think that'd be fine. That'd be fun. Yeah. Do you think? She would be terrified. <laughs> that's okay. We'd, we'd just goof around and I'd say, hey, Alyssa. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she likes goofy right oh she likes goofy yeah 
Yeah, Elliot, his favorite episodes were where you were the mysterious phantom. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I knew there had to be one out there. <laughs> he loved those. Uh, well, maybe we can get Elliot and the mysterious phantom on together sometime. <laughs> you mean he didn't like As I Lay Dying? <laughs> um, uh, my baggage is I can't think of a single stitch of baggage I brought. I came to this pretty baggage free. I mean, I uh, like notes from the Tilt a Whirl, the movie, well enough. I liked the trailer for Boys and Boys of Blur. That was pretty atmospheric and cool. And you got to hear Nate saying the quake and the dead. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, I guess I brought the, maybe the baggage that you guys didn't bring that I did brought that I I done brought to it was I have read a lot of genre fiction of the type that's obviously inspired and, and I've uh, read a lot of fantasy and horror and uh, stuff that I think is probably informing him uh, some Ray Bradbury a little smattering of Ray Bradbury in there who we'll get to later this year so I, I was sort of thinking of it a little bit more perhaps than you guys would have been from this perspective of someone who was comparing it to a lot of horror and fantasy and things in that genre the other people have done this kind of ancient evil comes to small town as we talked about a couple episodes i've read my share of stephen king novels this certainly has a little bit of that in there so yeah i I maybe had more direct stories of evil monsters coming to small towns that i could compare it to for what that's worth but other, other than that yeah i was just hoping for a good story and we should probably talk about whether i got one coming up after this brief message from our sponsor what The Bookening is sponsored today by you, the listener. Go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening to sign up for all kinds of great levels of sponsorship with all kinds of great prizes. Now, why would they want to do that, Jake? Because you love us and because you want this podcast to continue to exist and you want it to improve. That's right. We are threatening to pull the plug unless you make with the green stuff. No, we're not actually making that threat. It would be nice to have green stuff. Right, Brandon? It would be lovely. So make with the green. You can support your favorite and the best Christian literature podcast. In the world. I dare say in the world. In the history of the world. In the history of the world, yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that in the history of the world, this is the best Christian literature podcast that's ever been or will be. I'm behind that. Jake? At least the first part. And we're back. Welcome back to the Bookening. We are about to get into it now, guys. Get in to how we feel about this book, Andy Wilson's immortal classic and or mortal failure, The Boys of Blur. There's quicker, there's dead. I know that much. There's either one of them. Both of them exist in this book. Some people are quick and then they're dead. Some people are already dead when the novel begins, like Coach What's-His-Face. Wisdom. What's <laughs> Coach Wisdom, yes. <laughs> the book begins with the death of wisdom. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. You think N.D. Wilson was uh, trying to get at anything through that? No. You hadn't thought of that? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's completely appropriate for him to name that character, those characters, Wisdom, because it sailed right over your head. It sailed over my head. Well, Wisdom dead. What do you expect of me? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> N.D. tweeted us, what did you mean by calling Coach Wisdom? Wisdom? I think he just liked the sound of the word. <laughs> I, like, I like cool names. I'll go on. I, 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 I support goofy character names i like Groucho marx he always called his characters rufus t firefly and stuff like that so in the great marxian tradition andy wilson calls his characters things that are kind of weird and metaphorical and a little bit more namey yeah. weird than nameness i'm fine with that i'm, I'm, I'm a dickens fan yeah 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 yeah, yeah dickens exactly. had the craziest names ever mm-hmm. so the uriah brothers heap. were both very cheerful and yeah. yes uriah heap was your that's not, exactly what he what sounds, sounds like. like. Yep. <laughs> so good job there. All right. Let's talk about Boys of Blur. What did we think about Boys of Blur? I will begin. 
and then we'll go around the room. I thought this is a book that was not written for me. So let's start there. It's probably worth just saying this book is going to play better to 13-year-olds. And certainly I think it would play better to people who are experiencing some of these tropes for the first time. I'm fine with tropes. I'm sure that Nate Wilson was not unaware of the tropiness of this book. It's very tropey. And I think he probably intended it to be so. And I don't mind that. I, I, I like genre writing. I like writers that are within a certain genre and find ways to elevate or transcend that genre. I am all in favor of that. In fact, that's some of my favorite things to read and discuss and think about are the, are the people who have worked within a certain disreputable genre and found something interesting to do with it. And insofar as Mr. Wilson is attempting that, I am very happy that that's what he's doing. He's sort of also genre busting though, right? Like, Yeah. Well, how do you define genre busting? I expected a book that wasn't going to veer into zombies, for instance. So bringing zombies in to something that I was expecting to be more of like a, a set piece Florida cane sugar and football kind of novel was a little it's definitely opening up a fusion restaurant here he's got a little bit of horror in here he's got deep literary illusion going on with beowulf mm -hmm. kind of a then, hero's quest kind yeah, of it's joseph campbell-y kind of uh ooh, i just said joseph campbell and i appreciated the fact that he was trying to retell this beowulf story and mix it with kind of a steven spielberg-y feel it was mm. it was that that part i found was fun because, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know, I, maybe it's just the sugar cane that makes me think of E.T., but mm -hmm. there's some sort of the Spielberg-y nostalgia going on. And I'm a sucker for Spielberg. Maybe. I love, say what? Me too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love Spielberg. That Those aspects here, I like. I like that. I think some of the bigger problems with the books also have to do with the Beowulf retelling, but I'm sure we'll get just, there. We'll, we'll, so. we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a fun way to throw a bunch of different stuff into a blender and hit puree. puree. I enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed the second half of the book where things kind of got moving. We were through all the setup, but that's true of almost any kind of story like this. Certainly, you know, anything like Stranger Things or Stephen King or any of those stories where it's like, this is small town life and something ominous might be happening in the background. I think that's a really difficult trick for an author to pull off is where the characters are not actively engaged, but are only passively experiencing something that's happening. This evil is slowly growing in the town or whatever. And Charlie doesn't really have a mission and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to keep reader interest in that type of story. It's one of those interesting genre problems that your Stephen Kings of the world always have to solve is we can't usually start with, we are going to go and kill the monster. You know, it's that middle section of Dracula where Dracula's feeding on Lucy and nobody knows what's going on. And so nobody is actively engaged in pursuing Dracula or doing anything all that exciting. They're just trying to solve medical problems and living their life and talking to crazy old guys by the sea and trying to make that stuff not be boring is an interesting challenge. And I think he more or less pulls it off. It's, it's, I wasn't unexcited or unengaged by the book. A lot of issues with young adult literature is that they just don't care about their sentences on the page. They're mm -hmm. just writing because of the plot. And I think Indy Wilson cares about what he's writing. I think he cares about the way his words sound. I think he cares about the words he's choosing, the images he's choosing. And I appreciated that. He's, I guess it's as simple as saying he's trying to write well, but not everybody does. So I would props that, for that. Yeah. Most people in this particular genre seem to not. And I mean, oftentimes prose is very, very lazy. And the one thing that I will say I definitely noticed about this prose is it's not late. You know, he's not just going to grab the handiest cliche off the shelf. And, you know, yeah. it was a winding river that wound through glorious. I don't know. I'm so averse to cliches. I can't even do it, guys. 
Um, I'm such a good writer. I can't even I can't even do faux bad prose. But you can't even see the word purple, right? Yeah, or the color purple. Yeah, yeah. I can't even see the color purple. Yeah, <laughs> the DVD just turns to ash in my hands if just, I try to put it in the player. Yeah, and that's the one Spielberg movie that I stand against. That's right. When we say we like. Steven Spielberg. It's we don't need the color purple. We don't need the color purple. And we don't need no purple prose. We don't need it. And uh, Andy Wilson's obviously put thought into his characters, into his prose, and that's fantastic. And that's good for the 13-year-olds that are going to read this. They're not just going to be reading that J.K. Rowling, who obviously just like, it's not that she's necessarily even all that bad. I think she has an okay year, but she's or her editor has an okay year maybe, but she, you know, it's going to be like, I don't know, I can't think of a good example. It's just going to be those cliches, you know. <laughs> the only example I can think of right now is a winding river why do rivers always have to wind it's that sort of stuff that people just spew out without thinking that you use in verbal conversation and it's fine because you're trying to talk and think fast and if you want a really good article that's actually very very mean about the cliches in harry potter go look up harold bloom (laughs) (laughs) he has some some really really horrible things about it but they're pretty funny it's like putting muhammad ali in a ring with with so, rolling i remember um, reading some of his stuff i mean he hated it he hates everybody he hates stephen king too he hates Edgar Allan poe he says Edgar Allan poe reads well but only when translated from french and then back into english yeah. <laughs> that's harold bloom on Edgar Allan poe jake yeah <laughs> well i read it in one sitting and i enjoyed it i like how fast paced it is it's not any book it's not any even any young adult but i don't know what the last young adult book i picked up is probably when i was a young adult but it's not any book that you can pick up and cover to cover in one sitting without wanting to quit or walk away or wonder why you're reading what you're reading that was a big deal to me just being able to sit down and read it and want to know how the story ends Mm -hmm. um there's dead books and there's quick books it's accounting software (laughs) <laughs> which is what QuickBooks is. That's true. There's dead books. Yeah. That's why my finances are in a shambles. I've been using dead books. Yeah. Please use us for your finances. <laughs> I've got to upgrade to just QuickBooks. <laughs> my company's going to turn a corner. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that was a bit of silliness of the type that we've never had on the bookening. Never. Um, yeah. I mean, the book works. I want to say that first because we are going to talk about some things that we didn't like about the book. Andy Wilson, if you're listening. I'm not trying to hurt you. (laughs) I'm trying to help you. (laughs) What's that from? It's Gandalf. Oh, yeah. Uh, I I think we're going to end up spending a lot of time talking about some of the things that didn't work because it's interesting to us to talk about how those things don't work in a story like this. And there's probably more to talk about there. But I want to start, and and, and it is a genuine compliment for me to say it's a quick book, not a dead book. It's a book that you read and you get through in two sittings. In my case, one sitting in Brandon's, or uh, Jake's case. How many sittings in your case, Brandon? Two sittings. Two sittings. A maximum of two sittings. You get through it. It's got monsters and and, uh, adventures and uh, it's a fun little genre mashup and I don't want to be condescending towards that. I think that's a really cool thing to be able to do and it's got a little meat to it. Yeah, Charlie's an engaging primary character. Yeah. I liked Charlie. He was um, well drawn out. Just a good every boy. Yeah, I think that, well, like we've said before about good children's literature, it has to have a primary hero who child can empathize with and I can easily see my son, myself, even at that age, really empathizing with Charlie. Actually, as a matter of fact, if you go back to our list, our checklist from the Jungle Book episode that we did before we got blown up, we said, what? Hero, child can engage or empathize with. Check. Um, Strong narrative voice. Check. 
yeah, and um, Gary Villain, some check. sort of conflict yeah. that is, with a resolution. Stark conflict, it's check. Danger with a resolution. Mm-hmm. Have all that. Yep. So it has all the elements of a good story. Um, it obviously is engaging. We all read it in at least two sittings or less. Mm-hmm. Once you finally get to the mother, she is duly scary. I can see it. Oh, I thought you meant the mother. The good no, 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 no. The, the bad mother. The mother of the grin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, um, a th- she's kind of a terrifying character. So that whole twist, the whole sense of the twisted mother is always a scary idea, especially for a young person like that. So I think it was well done. Yeah. Well done out there. So and I'm a sucker for any story about like the, the cosmic battles that are going on just like, just out of sight. I could walk by some hedges and not know that there's a portal to another dimension, you know, through those hedges. I can be walking down the street and walk by an alleyway and not know that that alleyway takes me into, I, I love those kinds of stories. So I thought it was cool. I liked the central idea that there's been this Beowulf level epic battle going on between good and evil with only these stones set around the swamp to protect the world and you know most of us just go about our daily lives not not knowing about it and we just live in taper and we enjoy our football and our feuds and you know try to work out our weird racial issues and stuff like that but meanwhile there's a battle for the world's soul going on in this little swamp you know that's cool and it's always the classic heroes kind of thing you know it's luke skywalker's a farm boy on a planet and there's this whole world of adventure that he only hears about and then he suddenly gets to go and be the jedi the last jedi perhaps as we'll find we may or may not find out later this year so that was a cool part of it and one of my favorite american tropes is the small town Mm -hmm. trope so like you were saying with stephen king or with spielberg and i think there's a lot of value and i think he does it well here in um, evoking that feel of small town americana it's one of my favorite things about to kill a mockingbird for Mm -hmm. example i think that as far as american literature goes it's just it's a good interesting stage to put your story in and i think so you have the small town but then right outside the town you have the country and the threat that comes from the country I think it's a good backdrop to the story. Yeah, I mean, small towns are a good place for new to meet old. You know, if you're in a city, like, what is what is the mother of the Grand Hat going to do against New York City? But, you know, that's not, of course, that's not where she'd choose her entry point into our world. It would be a Ghostbusters story. Well, yeah, then it would be a Ghostbusters story. Um, With a big marshmallow man. Spoilers for those of you who haven't seen a movie that's older than I am, I think. Um... Yeah, and I, I've always liked, especially for supernatural stories, it's always fun to set them in a small town or Stephen King has stories where everybody gets trapped in, you know, in the mist, every, the mist comes in and everybody gets trapped in the shopping center where you have little microcosms of life where everybody represents a certain kind of person and you kind of, everything's very stark as to like, here's the good cop gone bad and it's this guy and we're not talking about a system or a society, but we have a character that stands in for that aspect of what we all have to deal with in the tapestry that is American life, I suppose. Well, Uh, it's the value of a trope in the first place or an an idiom or a colloquialism or anything like that. And literature is the fact that by just setting it here, you know that you're going to get a certain type of story and all these subconscious things that as Americans, because we've seen these stories before, we know what to expect now. There's a lot of value there. So just because there's a trope doesn't mean it's bad. Tropes are actually useful literary things. And so by having the small town, by having the sugarcane that kind of is like the cornfields in E.T. or thinking like, what's the M. Night Shyamalan movie where he did this? Oh, Signs. Yeah. Signs. Yeah. So the same thing with Signs. That was a useful trope for him there. It gives, it gives, it does a lot of work for you. 
so that you can get to the actual meat of the character and the story that you're trying to tell. And I think that's especially true for fantasy or sci-fi or horror stories. You need, those Those are actually very useful places to have tropes and to have even cliched, intentionally cliched characters because you need something very recognizable and grounded and relatable to start with if you're then going to go into wild flight flights. If you're going to have to spend the book figuring out who the mother of Gran is and how these Gran work, you can't at the same time be figuring out how the society of Taper works. So you need Taper. You almost need it to be a cliche. I would say, I can't think of a good example right now, but there are fantasy and sci-fi and horror stories that fail because they try to be interesting in every aspect it always falls on its head, you know? I mean, it's like, imagine if Star Wars had, um, imagine if the very original Star Wars movie had started like episode one began with the with the Jedi going to uh, handle a trade federation dispute on the planet of Naboo. That's not how you start that, the, that's not how you get, you kickstart Star Wars because you'd be trying to wrap your head around stuff way too fast and you wouldn't have anything to grab onto. Imagine if every planet in Star Wars didn't have Earth-like gravity right. and didn't have plants that basically resemble the plants that you know so they all disappear and you can focus on the one thing that is weird and difficult to wrap your head around that they want you to focus on right you'd end up with out of the silent planet (laughs) (laughs) boom in your face c.s lewis i'm not cutting that out um yeah imagine tatooine wasn't a desert planet but had all kinds of unique flora and then put the twin sons out there and yeah. see what happens. Who cares? Yeah, imagine if, if if Luke Skywalker was a really nuanced, deep, he had these deep psychological scars that we had to get into and he was seeing his psychiatrist all the time. It'd be, it'd be a waste of time. You need Luke Skywalker to be simple. You can make fun of Luke Skywalker, the, the writing of Luke Skywalker or of Han Solo, but you kind of need those simple archetypal characters because they're taking you through a world that's complex and fascinating and rich. And if, if you want to criticize some of the newer Star Wars movies, like the George Lucas newer ones the episodes one two and three you might be able to criticize some of the stuff that they did based on there's there's a good angle to take there's a angle that you haters maybe haven't taken enough of and you can get off of jar jar binks and the normal you know the sand speech and all the stuff that you don't like and find some new things to hate about those movies and think about what it does for us when it actually uses those tropes to its advantage so you get lava and mountains spewing lava and you know that you either have Sauron or you have Darth Vader right and so it's these they're they're useful they're oh. quick and they do a whole lot of like i said subconscious work for the viewer and for this even the person telling the story. You see this all the way back to like with Homer telling his um, epics. There were a lot of phrases that he would use over again, over and over again, like Dawn with the rosy red fingers. And these are just things that people would know. The wine, and dark sea. wine, dark sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that brings, I mean, all, all of the things that go with wine, dark sea libation and gods and Poseidon and all this that is tied up with it. And so you think, you know, the small town cornfields, you automatically have this whole a flash of memory mm-hmm. for the for the reader and it's nice. Yeah, and it's lazy authors use it badly because they expect those clichés to do all the work for them because they know if they evoke a cliché you're going to bring all kinds of memories and associations and ideas and Spielberg movies and everything to it and so they just don't do the work of making anything vivid or interesting because they just pile one cliché on another cliché and that's why we're taught by our literature teachers and you know if we have good ones in 7th or 8th grade to to not just use clichés both in our storytelling and in our descripting descript description descriptioning but Cliches are actually very useful when used well. Sometimes you don't have time to set up the dynamic of a town that we've never really understood. So you just make it small town America and you choose a few details like the sugar cane to make it to give it some interest and some local color and some vividness. I think Nate Wilson is pretty successful 
in doing that. Yeah, and that, that even goes as far as his characters. So Mac is kind of a stereotype, but he's a good stereotype. He's the boy coming back to his small town, good father figure, a good coach. A lot of those things get wrapped up into who he is, and maybe there's not a whole lot of depth to him, but I think it does the work that it needs to do. Right. I think it would be churlish for anyone to hate Charlie or Mac, like to say that those characters weren't successful. They are successful insofar as they do what needs to be done in the scope of this kind of story that Nate Wilson, you know, if you said, why isn't Charlie more like, why doesn't he get into like, what what happens to kids who are abused at an early age who have to take response? You know, you could, you could, you could, I could see somebody criticizing the book or, or, you know, Mac and his relationship with his wife. But those people just don't understand how good genre fiction and, and good quest fiction. I don't know what you want to call it. They just, they don't understand how this kind of story works. Uh, if we ever read Lamort D'Arthur, Arthur's a stereotype. Lancelot and Guinevere have depth to them, but... Well, we read Beowulf. The troubled and, characters always do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. Um, we read Beowulf, and that, that story doesn't have a stitch of three-dimensionality on it. Beowulf is good. People that don't like Beowulf are bad. Monsters yeah. are bad. Um, People who like monsters are bad. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that wasn't part of it. <laughs> How did you feel, Jake, about uh, the character of Charlie's mother? Speaking of tropes, in fiction like this, normally what you have is... Uh, you either have an orphan or you have parents that are just conspicuously absent, right? And that solves a problem of where the parents, when the world needs to be saved, where the adults, when the world needs to be saved, their dad or their dad, <laughs> they're dead or they're gone. Wait, they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> they're dead or they're gone or maybe they're deadbeats. Even Twain has to deal with that problem, right? So I, lo- I love that Wilson gives Charlie parents that are present and his dad dad is bad mac is awesome and his mom's pretty awesome too i like that she's there i like that she seems to be a good mom i like that she uh got herself out of an abusive situation and got Charlie out of an abusive situation and found a good man but yeah there's not much to say about her because she's she's there at the beginning she's there a little bit in the middle and that's it like you said it doesn't explore all the complexities of the abuse and all that but (laughs) he's not right he's not writing Anna Karenina right so that sort of stuff would just get in the way yeah and so I think that what she does is she's a good counterpoint just like the grandmother figure Mm. later on to this corrupt mother yeah I think I think the mom and Molly serve the classic female function in literature of this type of being something virtuous that you can always kind of have a have in the back of your head. In fact, certain times he does think about Molly. Um, you know, he specifically says like, you know, these monsters are never going to get Molly or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a classic, uh, I don't know. And I really don't mind it because I'm a sexist pig, I guess. But um, and it's nice for a little boy to have that, especially if he has a younger sister. I could see Elliot being roused up by that. Yeah. Thinking like, oh, yeah, I could see me with Lucy. I'd protect Lucy in that situation. And so there's that connection. Yeah, I think there is. And there's, so. I don't know. I mean, you can, we, we made fun of it a little bit in Dracula, how much Bram Stoker, like, way over sentimental, sentimental, mm-hmm. what kind of, what's the word? Sen- <laughs> Sentimentalizes. Sentimentalizes women like Mina and Lucy and just women, womankind in general, really. But a slightly sentimental view of women is one that I find in my life most honorable men have and uh, it inspires them to fight monsters and stuff. Yeah. So it's a useful function. Certainly worked for Grimm and the Grimm brothers and lots of storytellers ever since. Yeah. Well, sentimentality is usually built on emotions that are real and good. They just 
co-opt those things like melodrama just for the sake of getting the feeling without any other virtue. Well, I mean, I always feel, I think I'm... Uh, and I don't, I don't think that this book is sentimental. That's no. not a word that came to my mind at all about this book. No, I, I and agree. that's a, that's a virtue. I don't, a lot of young adult fiction can be very sentimental and silly. Well, especially if you're talking about something like uh, abuse or race, it's, it's easy for the author to begin, like start virtue signaling all over the place. You know, here's how, here's why I'm right, uh, right about race. Here's why you as a reader agree with me about abuse. Here's why abusers are bad. And it's like, oh, thanks for taking that brave and noble stand that abusive men are bad you know can we get a nobel peace prize for this this author you know that's some of the resentment that i have towards those kinds of newberry books about you know where it's just like slavery was bad thanks thanks war is bad thanks newberry award winner thanks for teaching yeah. me i'm such an i'm an impressionable child that needs to learn that slavery was bad i guess i guess maybe i was and did but <sighs> yeah flannery o'connor has a really useful essay for thinking about that's a lot of the stuff from the 50s and 60s right that had that sort of mentality and today you have the whole multiculturalism is good and you should be the moral soldier for the immigrant or whatever it is that PBS is trying to teach the kids. <laughs> Not that we're anti-immigrant. No. I mean, we just think that they should be on the other side of the yeah. wall that our commander Build that is wall. building. Where is that wall? Uh, by the way, listener, if you are stupid, um, you should know that I'm being ironic, Milne style. I don't think Trump's all that great. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. I'm not all that excited about him. Let's get all this out. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> where were we? Oh, immigrants. You're talking about immigration. <laughs> yeah, I forgot why. <laughs> uh, oh, politicized. Yes. And yeah, she just was talking about these novels and short stories that were only about turning you into a good little patriot or turning you into a good little American citizen. And that that's not the work that good literature should do. So... That's all. No, I mean, if anything, I think good literature is something that allows you to transcend your time and place and to see what's universal about things. Yeah, we have a word for literature that's only there to make you into a good little patriot or a good little citizen or a good little homeschool or whatever it is, and that's called propaganda. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Garbage would be another <laughs> word that comes to mind. Um, so, Jake, how do you feel about literature that only exists to turn you into a good little patriot? I think it's garbage. There you go. And so we said this is categorically not sentimental. This is also categorically not propaganda. How did you guys feel about... So Grimm's fairy tales usually don't bring up things like... I guess you could argue that they do because they're pretty brutal sometimes. But Nate Wilson made a conscious choice to include things like racism and child abuse in this story and child abuse surviving um, in this little fantasy story about an ancient evil coming into a small town. Did you guys feel like that was a successful choice, that he pulled it off? Did you have concerns? Did you feel tensions? What do you think? What did you think? (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I don't think he actually brings in racial tension. I don't feel racial tension in the book at all. That is exactly. And I think if you felt yeah. racial tension in the book, it's you brought it to it yourself. I think part of the point is to present to you black people and white people in an interracial marriage without any tension as a normal and good and okay thing. Just the way that Disney puts women in lead roles as a normal and good thing and sells it to kids and you're not supposed to think about it. It's just supposed to be a thing that you accept. I think that's what he's doing. And even when you have... Okay, so he, he he hints at it in one place, and that's when you have the cops with Mac. But he gives you what anybody uh, writing horror does, which is a, some other thing to be the thing, which is football, mm-hmm. right? And we know that 
in taper and in real college or real football towns across the country, football transcends race. And our guy is our guy, whether he's black or white, because he's for our team. And so this was about, yeah, there was two white guys with Mac. But I guarantee you, if Mac was their guy, him being black wouldn't be a thing. So it was about football in that moment. But I think, you know, what Brandon said earlier uh, I don't remember if it was off mic or not, was he was having trouble knowing who was black and who was white and who was what. I think that's the point. I think the point is he wants to treat it like it's no thing. Yeah. And you're not. it doesn't matter who's black and who's white and who's mixed. It's just there. It's a reality that's present. And Mac's black and Mac's a good dad. And Bobby's white and he's a bad dad. And Molly's mixed and she's a sweet little girl. And Charlie's white and Cotton's black and... Sugar's white, and who knows who who else is what, but it's just supposed to be a thing that's that's there. Who's who's um who's Sugar? I don't remember. Sugar's Charlie's brother. Oh yeah yeah the the that's right yeah yeah the the quarterback the quarterback yeah. I forgot all about Sugar. Well, I thought it, I thought for a minute there we were just starting to name things with words like white, black, sugar, sugar's white, white. And chocolate black. is black, <laughs> the Panthers black. <laughs> But that in itself does make a point. I mean, just like Disney by having yeah, a woman. Absolutely. Just be the it, but it's a really, uh, you know, in Disney's case, it's really smart and sophisticated to, we're going to put a woman in a lead role. We're going to have a black man in a lead role. And we're going to have zero commentary about it. Yeah. It's just going to be a thing that's presented to you as a real thing that nobody should blink at. And in doing that, we're declaring to you that feminism wins and, you know, whatever else. And I think that that's the kind of thing that whether he was shooting for it or not, I think that's the kind of thing that the way he handles race does simply by putting black and white people in there and letting them be and then not giving us any commentary on it. You can bring any of your own commentary to it that you want to. And that's what a lot of, you know, these, the same thing I think goes for abuse. We don't know much of the details of the abuse or how it was processed. And so, you know, I think the idea is probably, well, you can bring in to that as a kid, whether if you've faced abuse, you can bring yourself into that and bring your own relationship to your abusive father. Or if you've have no experience with that, you can be introduced to the idea that there are dads out there that are abusive and your understanding of that can grow or diminish based on what you what you bring. And I think that's the the virtue of having these kinds of either stereotypical characters like Mac or Charlie or kind of flat portrayals of race and abuse. Would it be uh would you agree or Mac is a specifically black sort of a dad stereotype. Agree or disagree? I agree. I agree with that. And I think that Mac works better as a black man. And I'm not sure I can explain why in a way that's satisfying. So so yeah, there is a black stereotype. It's sort of Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince is a certain kind of a black dad stereotype, right? He's He's a big man with broad shoulders who has authority and respect in in the community and is able to do and say things and be a kind of safe and secure guy that I don't know somehow or another has I feel like black blackness or that uh, a black stereotype plays into that not sure how to how to articulate it but it's a good character yeah and I and I know and I think maybe it's just because I grew up grew up playing sports maybe it's my own my own stock character that I bring but I know that I know that guy. I know that guy who has decided, who who's a black man, who often had a bad 
home life, but has decided he's going to be a community father. And he's a big man, and he's going to be a coach, and he's going to just be a father to kids. And there's nobody that can pull that off quite like that guy. And I, I can start naming specific people. And so maybe it's just my own past, my own experiences that the kinds of men that, that do that, that say, hey, I know what it is that's come from a hard place, a fatherless background, and I am not going to let these boys go without a strong father figure, and I'm going to be that for them by being their coach. Mm-hmm. Those are black men in in my life mm-hmm. that I can look in, and see, and so maybe that's why it works so well for me. And, and, I, and there are, you know, obviously there are white guys out there that do that too, but just there's stereotypically. Of, there are white guys that have authority, but there's, certainly, there's just like a certain way of wearing it. Yeah. I don't know. That's... Well, and maybe it's that culturally we're willing to give black men more permission to wear authority. I don't know. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe it just depends on context. Your thoughts? I think that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> My thought on it is uh, to go back to the, the the fact that I didn't see any of the. Right. I, I was completely surprised. You just don't see color. Yeah, I don't <laughs> see color. Right. I'm colorblind. Right. No. Um, I was compl- I was actually surprised when Mac when we found out that there was race at all at play, <laughs> and it's Charlie wasn't. At first, I thought, well, maybe Charlie's black then too, and then Charlie's not black; he's white. And so, I do think there's some value to that. To go back, I can't remember the name of the stupid book, but it's this book written by a Hispanic person, and the book is just all about their Hispanic culture and how their Hispanic culture is being oppressed by the white culture, and how their deep wisdom from their it's like the people who write about Indians or Native Americans. It's always about how their deep spiritual values of their culture and they bring it, and it just becomes this big love fest with how different they are. And that's just kind of dumb. So I do appreciate the fact that race is just completely overlooked here. It's just normal. And what you have instead are the things that, you know, like my dad grew up in a small town where football was really important to them. And I think that that rings true, that towns really do develop their rivalries based around their football teams. Yeah, it's, I mean, we're in Indiana. Brandon, you grew up in Texas, right? In Texas, high school football stadiums in Texas are bigger than college and Oh, yeah. Maybe even some NFL stadiums, right? Like, oh yeah, they're huge. And in Indiana, Indiana has high school basketball stadiums that are bigger than many college basketball stadiums. In Indiana, it's basketball. In Texas, it's football. And yeah, the rivalries are real and they're huge. And it's you know that scene. If you're not from a community like that in the South with football, if you've never watched Friday Night Lights, if you've if you're not from a place like Indiana with basketball, there's there are cities in Indiana where the the size of the gym is larger than the population. The seating capacity of their high school basketball gym is larger than the population of the city or the county, and it's because it's that big. And yeah, on Friday night when that rivalry game's going on, the whole community people travel to see it. I don't know why you were making that point and why I felt the need to jump in there and back you up, but. That's the part that feels real about this book is these, like you were saying, these rivalries as opposed to race. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think that that's actually a true part of this book that race is kind of erased and you don't. Yeah. In, in Indiana and Indiana, Indiana has really racist parts to it. The KKK was, you know, they say the KKK was born here, right? Yeah. We can all name the town where the last lynching happened probably. Um, When it comes to basketball. Our guys are our guys, whether they're black or white. So the issue with him, what I imagine, is the issue with some of these novels that are now re- winning the Newbery Award, is that they make their cultural difference a virtue, so much so that it becomes fake. It's like this magical attribute they have. I'm Cuban. Look at me. 
I'll make a whatever delicacy I make here and it'll set us apart and there'll be some magic that you can come and participate in. And the fact that it's over, that that's not a part of this is nice. It's not like Mac is the big black spiritual father figure that has the magic that comes from the fact that he's black. And we got to no, be very, he's just a great guy. Yeah, we got to be delicate with the fact that he's black and we got to show respect to that and, and talk about his African heritage and his, yeah, it's just, it's not a part of it. I remember reading an interview with Morgan Freeman from years ago. I would have been around the time that Silence of the Lambs came out, which I think was like real early 90s. But Morgan Freeman was just talking about how annoying it was that there's the best part, based on a best-selling novel, there's this great part that every actor wants, which is Dr. Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal the Cannibal, great villain part. Every actor wants it. And Morgan Freeman just said, there's no way I would ever be considered for it, even though I'm a great actor, because we can't have a black guy play the, the you know, cannibal serial killer guy. Because it's going to be called racist. Right, it'll be racist. <laughs> there's this whole, there's all these parts that I can't get because all my parts have to be noble. and um, <laughs> That's great. So, um... I didn't I didn't feel any tension about it either, guys. <laughs> My best friend in sixth grade was black. <laughs> so why would I? <laughs> uh, if you've only ever listened to the podcast, you don't know that I'm not black. As a That's of true. <laughs> Any one of us could be. Um, I felt a little bit of tension. I'm going to go ahead and say I hope I'm not a racist. I think the reason I felt tension was because I always feel tension when conservative Christians try and handle these issues because I've just read so many books where they do such a terrible job of trying to do what Nate Wilson does pretty well and they do it poorly. So I kept expecting that point where you know Mac would come in and give him a big hug or maybe be real stern with him in an authoritative like black dad kind of a way you know just this up real ham-fisted like this is racial equality this is what we even as christians you know even as christians who are supposed to be backwards we're actually progressive you know or i, just, I, I kept i thought about it, it the whole the, i did think about that like but i was just happy that he didn't try to do anything with it but just put them there yeah and i was was not i didn't get any willies about it at all now i will say there was one element that we've all already agreed off air i think and i'm gonna go ahead and say we can put it on air you guys can argue with me if you want but there was one there was one very ham-fisted use of something that perhaps could have been more well thought out in terms of racial sensitivity sensitivity and that was naming a character a little black homeschooled boy the name cotton yeah. Yep. That'd be like always having him walk around eating watermelon or something. <laughs> <laughs> and drinking purple Kool-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> Some malt liquor. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> and we looked it up, and it's probably based on who guy does? Sir Robert Bruce Cotton. Sir Robert Bruce Cotton, a Beowulf scholar. Not a scholar. He was some medieval guy who compiled the, you know, some medieval manuscripts, and that's something like that. Brandon should know this better than me, but yeah, you had it right. He was a librarian, basically. He had a famous library, okay, where the manuscript was preserved. Wilson also then gets that Beowulf reference in, mediates the difficulty of Cotton by making it. His real name is Renee. He named himself Cottonmouth you know, for like a poisonous snake, which is really cool when you're three year, three or four years old to name yourself after. But the fact is... Uh, We're he, still stuck with a little black boy named Cotton. And yeah. he could have done any number of other things. Right. He's, Cotton was uh, something that the slaves had to pick during yeah. the institution of slavery. 
Yep. And um, I have picked cotton myself. Not as a slave. <laughs> you could have had him named Robert or something. <laughs> Why did you have that? Bruce. Yeah, he could have nicknamed himself Bruce because he really liked Scottish Lee. history or Bruce Lee. Yeah. There are any number of names he could have named himself. But you had to go with Cotton. You had to go with Cotton. We cannot support that decision, Andy Wilson. Surprised it made it through so many editors. <laughs> I'm surprised nobody, like, you know, I did actually searched and nobody... I couldn't find anybody say anything about it. So maybe that means that we're all just being sensitive idiots. Yeah, maybe it. we're the real but racist once again. There we go. Yeah, I don't know. But I'm from Texas, so I have an excuse. <laughs> we're all racist down there. everybody. Today's booking was produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by me, Nathan Alberson, along with Brandon Chastine and Jacob Minsel. For more great content, find us at warhornmedia.com and visit us on social media at warhornmedia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And what's the other thing I'm supposed to say? Support us on Patreon. Support us on Patreon. Slash, that's forward slash, not backslash, because why do we even have a backslash? The booking. Yeah. Hmm. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Thank you, Jake. Um, <laughs> he loves me just like you do. 